0: Hey everybody, your buddy Basil here, and uh, you're listening to the pre-intro, right? pre intro, right? Gons, you there? Pre
1: intro, yeah, I'm here. There he is.
0: Okay, I just need, I just need to make sure you're there. Okay. You're on my team. Okay. Yep. All right. So we got a wonderful conversation actually today. Very, very exciting and mind-bending. And I don't know. It's a whole, what do you think, Gons?
1: Well, I, for me, it was a different experience because yeah. I actually watched the film before having the conversation with uh, our guest Rick Delano. So, um, but you know, uh, I, I hope that it, you know, makes people want to see the film number one, but number two, um, just having that conversation and digging into some of the, the things that were, uh, you know, heavy topics in the film. I, I hope it makes everyone think because, um, you know, it is interesting. The stuff that's being presented, yeah. um, uh, you know, groundbreaking if you want yeah. to even call it that.
0: And I got to say, I did not watch the film before the interview and that's just sort of how I like to roll on things. Um, but you know, just through the whole conversation, I got to say it, may be one of my favorite conversations that we've had on the show. Uh, I think we've been saying that a lot. We've gotten pretty lucky with, <laughs> with some uh, guests on the show lately, but we're not going to talk too much. I just wanted to remind you guys about Canary Cry News Talk. If you have not yet subscribed to it on iTunes or Stitcher or any of those cool podcast, uh, players that you guys have, go check it out. Canary Cry News Talk. Uh, we won't be posting them here on this feed forever. So if you want to continue to keep up uh, in the news with Basil and Gans, search Canary Cry News Talk. Also com. And uh, yeah, there we go. Okay, let's get into it.
1: This is Canary Cry Radio.
0: One of the, the fundamental
2: principles of cosmology is the... Uh important principle, that that we believe that the Earth does not occupy a special position. Yet, there is this very special direction imprinted in these baby pictures of the universe. And it's pretty clear now, since many different groups have hammered at this, that it's real, it's in there in the data. What's much less clear is what it means.
1: The cosmic microwave background alignments do not define a center, but instead an axis. A preferred direction spanning the entire universe. The fact that these alignments are correlated to our own neighborhood is highly difficult to explain from within the assumptions of Big Bang cosmology. Dark energy, a
0: hypothetical form of energy that allows an accelerated expansion of the universe.
1: Nobody knows what the dark energy is. There Thousands of people out there trying to work out what the dark energy is. What they do is they have to invent it now. And if you've ever read
2: the science magazines, they say, well, there's dark energy and dark matter out there, and they constitute 96% of our universe. The reason they say that is because they need it. Science reflects humanity's global collective intelligence. You've got Christian scientists, Buddhist scientists, Hindu scientists, atheist scientists, scientists of all religious tradition and no religious tradition. that are all contributing to our common understanding of what's real and what's important how things are, and which things matter. I think Carl Sagan might have been getting at that when he said, science is at least in part, informed worship. Hey
0: everybody, and welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil.
1: And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 110.
0: Yeah, 110. Good for us, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Basil, are you and I... Simply insignificant products of time plus matter plus chance in this ever-expanding universe. Just a speck of matter in a world that cares not about our purpose or, you know, our destiny. Or are these ideas a product of bad theories built on faulty premises that ignore the raw data we see in the universe? Uh, our guest today is Rick Delano, who's the producer and writer for the documentary film The Principle. The film challenges conventional cosmological theory concerning gravity in the universe with world-renowned physicists, Lawrence Krauss and Michio Kaku, who were involved in the film, among many other thinkers, including a Catholic theologian named Robert Sanginus who wrote Galileo Was Wrong, and a guy I found fascinating, Max Tegmark, a physics professor at MIT. Uh, We'll get into all these topics here, but Rick, thank you for coming on to the show. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great, guys. Thanks
1: for having me. Yeah, glad to have you on the show. You
0: know, uh we've explored a lot of uh, interesting, uh, I don't know, uh, science stuff here <laughs> involving the Earth <laughs> and its many possibilities of existence. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty interested to hear about this one. Uh, you know, I'm excited to have you on the program here because uh, part of what we've done here on this show is sort of explore the, the new theories or the new information or the new science or the new pseudoscience coming out involving, uh, the earth. And it's, uh, just what it's just, the, you know, the real deep existential questions about the earth, like its shape, <laughs> things like that. Um, so no, this is gonna, this is gonna be interesting. And I gotta say, it's uh, It's been a while since I've um uh, explored the heliocentric model. Yeah.
2: It's sort of like uh, one of the most amazing things to me is that The Principle is actually the very first feature-length film to examine the Copernican Principle. And that's so astounding to me until I stopped and realized, you know, If we lived in a goldfish world, nobody would make a documentary about water either. Mm. It's just there. You know, nobody even questions it. Nobody doubts it. There's very few things left in the world upon which essentially everyone can agree. And the idea that the Earth is not the center of the universe and that it's certainly going around the sun is is one of those things. that Essentially, everyone agrees. So when you challenge that, uh, two things are bound to happen. A lot of people are going to just roll their eyes and say, oh, boy, here we go. And then a smaller but significant person, we're going to actually get violently angry with you. Right. Which is interesting when you think about it. Why should it matter so much, really? When you think about it, the idea of the Earth's position in the universe is the absolute idea that has launched the last three civilizational overturnings. It's fascinating. Copernicus comes along. When he comes along, we all know because we can look up and see it, dummy. The universe is revolving around us. I mean, come on, look, there's the sun. It's moving, dummy. (laughs) There's the stars. They're moving, dummy. If you question that, you are clearly crazy. Now, today, um, if you say that the sun is moving, you're a dummy. And if you say that the stars are moving, you're a dummy. And to me, the most fascinating detective story in all of history is how in the world did essentially every human being come to have his view of reality completely inverted on that question? And that is what the principle is about, is the fascinating attempt to uh, discern our place in the cosmos and how this idea keeps coming back again and again, first with Copernicus, then with Einstein, and now coming back again, as Lawrence Krauss uh, in the film says, is this Copernicus coming back to haunt us? Well, mm-hmm. in fact, it is. Uh, we are about to go through this whole question one more time.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's it's, it's I mean, when you put it that way, holy smoke.
1: <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is a big deal. And, and you know, it's, really fascinating. We can get into some of the individual physicists and uh, thought leaders you had in the film that that said some pretty interesting things. Um, Among them, you know, since Lawrence Krauss was obviously he's sort of the, you know, he's been kind of a a poster child for modern physics, Um, you know, talking about nothing that's really not nothing. Uh, But there's a portion um, where he talks about his message to students. And I, I just found it very interesting that he would admit this. Um he said, one, we're more insignificant yeah. than we thought before, and two, the future is miserable. That's his, that's his oh, message no. to, the, <laughs> to the to the to the youth.
2: One of my absolute favorite moments in the film, and the reason is, after he delivers that line, he sits back with the happiest, most cherubic little smile on his face, like he couldn't possibly be happier. Yes. But, <laughs> let us know that we're more insignificant than we thought and that the future is miserable. And you know, if you're going to have a good film, you, you need a ma you, you you need a mephistopheles <laughs> And uh Lawrence Just is a magnificent one. Uh so yeah, we are we are reaching one of those really interesting civilizational inflection points where basically everybody can feel the pillars wobbling. They can feel the pillars of the economy wobbling, the pillars of the world uh security and military order. Everyone knows this. Um, you know, we we live at one of those times when everything is, is changing at, at a uh, rapidly accelerating rate. And the fundamental thing, really, the fundamental thing is not military power, and it's not economic power. The fundamental thing is who gets to tell the creation story to the young, because that is the greatest power in the world. Once. You determine who gets to tell a child who and what they are in this universe. Everything else pales to insignificance because every data of experience is going to be processed through that filter. And that's why it's so fascinating to me that 500 years ago you were crazy if you said the Earth was going around the sun. And today you're crazy if you say it wasn't. How in the world was that accomplished? And That pendulum seems to swing every few hundred years now from one extreme to the other, and it's had tremendous civilizational impacts. I mean, if you look up in the sky and you believe that what you are seeing is a universe structured around us as the place of the incarnation of the Son of God, well, you're going to have a certain kind of civilization, if you look up in the sky and you see a vast, limitless, cold, infinite space, which couldn't possibly care less about us, uh, and is eventually going to run out of energy or or, uh, collapse back in on itself, well, you're going to have a completely different kind of civilization. So the swing of this pendulum has tremendous implications for our everyday lives. It's not just a a theoretical question of interest to the cosmologists. It's it's a fundamental datum by which we construct our perception of reality.
1: Yeah, wow. it's, uh, it's really fascinating in the film, which uh, I appreciated you um, you were able to give me a screener. Uh, Basil hasn't seen the film yet, and that's kind of like how we uh, approach, uh, you know, some of these interviews sometimes is um you know, one I'm of the us, big dummy. No, 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 it's just you, <laughs> you, you, you represent the audience that has not seen the film as well. Um, mm-hmm. but uh, That's
2: smart there, Gons. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, hey, what about me?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'll say you're smart when you've seen the film. Back.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, one of the questions I had, um, just from the top here is, uh, how did you get you know, world renowned physicists like Michio Kaku and Lawrence Krauss to participate in the film? Because I've seen articles, uh, a couple articles that say, you know, Rick Delano tricked these guys into being in the film. What's kind of the story there?
2: Well, I'm still trying to figure out how I got them to move their lips like that. (laughs) But um, other than that, here's how it happened. Uh, I became fascinated by this question way back around 2005 or so. When I read my partner's book, Galileo Was Wrong, which is still the most fascinating single book I've read in the last at least 20 years. And I began to follow this. I began to, the, the greatest website in the world, as far as I'm concerned, is arxiv.org, which is the Cornell University science preprint site. And every new paper that's published in science or physics or mathematics is posted on that server. And you can go there every day, and you can type in whatever you're looking for, and all the new papers will be put right in front of your eyes. So for several years, I began to study this, what, what they call the axis of evil. Very interesting name, by the way. Yeah. Evil, evil, why? Well, evil because it's not supposed to be there. <laughs> uh, Present cosmology is based on one simple assumption. It is the principle, the Copernican cosmological principle. And that states, essentially, that there are no special places in the universe. There's no up, no down, no left, no right, no edges, no end. And essentially, on its largest scales, in order for our cosmology to be correct, the universe has to be uniform. There can be no special places that are privileged with respect to any others. And the axis of evil is a, in my opinion, a civilization-changing event. Because what the axis tells us, and we've now had three separate missions go up and, and study this, because the physicists just could not believe their eyes when they found this. It couldn't be real. It had to be a mistake. So three separate missions over about 15 years were sent up, and it's there. Now, reasonable people are still able to disagree, of course, about what it means, but there's no longer any real basis to doubt that it's there. And what it is, is it is a, an alignment, a special direction, an axis that runs across the entire visible universe. It is the largest visible structure in the entire universe. And it's not supposed to be there. But wait. There's more. This is not just picking out any special direction. This special direction is pointing out our local neighborhood. Two special geometric planes related to our local neighborhood. The ecliptic, which is the path that the planets follow as they orbit the sun. And the equinox, which is that point where the ecliptic and the Earth's equator intersect twice a year. Now, this is impossible. It's like taking a high-powered telescope and pointing it out at Jupiter, and what you see is your backyard. I mean, this can't possibly be there. Right. And so for years and years and years, we followed this back and forth. And, you know, one guy would say, oh, I found out that it's a dust cloud. And another guy would say, oh, no, it was a it was a mistake in the data processing algorithm. And this went on and on and on and on for years. Finally, around 2010, my partner and I said, this is standing up. This is definitely going to stand up. And we have to make this film now, because I won't go into a lot of the eye-glazing details, but this axis of evil would have to exist if geocentrism, the idea that Earth is at the center of the universe. If that were true, we would have to see some evidence that this plane of the ecliptic and the equinoxes would be cosmological in significance, not just significant in our own local system. And lo and behold, perhaps the most astounding discovery in cosmology, at least in the last century, is in fact, they are cosmological in nature. So we decided, hey, let's make this film. Let's go talk to the guys who are doing this research. And let's put them on camera, and let's ask them questions about two primary areas. Number one, the history of how everybody in the world had their worldview turned upside down from believing we were the center to believing we were an insignificant dot, because that's a fascinating story. And the second one was, let's figure out what this axis of evil is, and what does it mean for our present views of, of reality. So we, we we created a list of people we wanted to talk to. And it was really interesting because some guys would just say, I am not interested in discussing this with you, and just you know, we wouldn't hear back from them. Then other guys would like to start asking questions. What do you want to ask? What you know, what, what 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 is the film about? Some of these guys made me go back and forth 10 or 12 times before they would agree to be interviewed. And, of course, once they were interviewed, the camera documents that unless some power unbeknownst to me exists, by which I was able to make them move their lips like that, (laughs) um, what's happened here is that I have asked questions that nobody else was asking, which shouldn't surprise anybody. After all, I believe Earth is the center of the universe. I am the goldfish in the bowl who wants to make a documentary about water. Now, one of the great things about outliers, one of the great things about being a real out-there maverick is that you will perceive the data from a different standpoint. And that can give you the opportunity to fit the puzzle pieces together in a way that would never even occur to anybody else. So what makes The Principle an interesting film is that We asked questions that nobody else would have even conceived of asking, and we exposed, I think, uh, a number of very interesting ironies that lie at the heart of the scientific enterprise here today. Remember, now, science comes into existence, modern science. The modern scientific method really comes into existence. With the natural philosophers sitting there saying, you know, you theologians have been arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin for about three and a half centuries now. We're checking out. You know what we're going to do? We're going to focus on what we can see, measure, test, and experiment upon. Okay? You guys have fun. We're going to stick with what we can actually measure. And that was a brilliant idea. Golly. We're having this chat today over these technologies because the natural philosophers, God bless them, decided they were going to limit their investigations to what we would now call the material universe and to the relations between objects in the material universe. What a fantastic idea that turned out to (laughs) be. Now, the irony is this. After this magnificent 400-year run, science has now reached the point where it is bumping directly up against the questions that used to be considered to be proper to the domains of philosophy and metaphysics and even theology. And the stunning thing is, look at these poor guys now. They have really reached the end of their rope. They now must invent 96% of the mass and energy of the universe out of thin air (laughs) to make the Einstein equations work. Dark matter and dark energy together comprise 96% of the freaking universe, and we can't find either one of them. Right? (laughs) And me, that's interesting. But it gets much worse. It gets much worse.
1: Yeah, and it's really fascinating to hear Uh, You know, the questions you must have asked really must have sparked something in these guys because Michio Kaku in the film uh, basically admits that, you know, modern or current cosmological theory is is off in terms of, you know, uh, if if you have theory to experiment and it's off by a factor of, you know, five or ten, it's like, oh, that's really it's really bad. But he admits that that cosmology, their current theory to experiment is off by 10 to the 120 which I mean, is a number that is so stupendous that nobody can even,
2: that's far, far, far bigger number than the number of atoms in the universe, okay? <laughs> that's how, and, and it's beautiful, because God bless Michio for that. That's another one of my favorite moments in the film, and thank you, Michio, for giving me that, uh, because it took courage uh, sure. to, give, to give me that. But what they are, what they are saying to us is that, we have this horrible dilemma in front of us. On the one hand, our miracles come from laboratories now. Our faith is in science now. And by golly, they have the miracles to show, don't they? Cell phones, computers, rocket ships, airplanes. These are freaking miracles, man. On the other hand, their theories. Are collapsing in the face of observations. When they try to unify the very large and the very small, their answers are off by 10 to the 120th power. Guys, let me tell you, when your two best theories result in conflicts of 10 to the 120th power, <laughs> something is wrong. <laughs> something is very, very wrong. And what we propose in the film is okay. When you reach the end of the road, and guys, we've reached the end of the road, it even, it's even worse than 10 to the 120, because in order to even get that close, we have to posit a multiverse. We have to assume that there exist other domains, causally disconnected space-time domains out there that they call the multiverse, which can never even, in theory, come under the investigation of the scientific method. So remember, Those natural philosophers back there 500 years ago saying, we're not going to argue about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. 500 years later, we're in danger of spending a few centuries arguing about how many multiverses we can never see or test in any way at all. It's a dead end. We've reached a dead end. Now, dead ends are frightening and horrifying, but they're also wonderful because it means we are being forced in spite of ourselves to go back and test the things that we knew were right. We we can't make it work. Therefore, one or more of our basic assumptions must be an error. So what we did was we said, okay, what's the first assumption? Well, the first assumption, the thing that brings the modern world into existence, the thing that launches that fabulously successful modern scientific enterprise is Copernicus. Copernicus says we're not the center. That leads to a massively persuasive change in the way we view reality. Along comes Newton, and he makes it absolutely... No smart person in the world believed in geocentrism, except a few Jesuits by the, by the 17th century. And the only reason... And the Jesuits were very smart, of course, but the only reason they believed in geocentrism was because they had been told by the Pope that that's what the Bible said. Nobody else believed it. Nobody else. And this was... I mean... <laughs> I I try to imagine what I would have thought if I were a geocentrist when Newton came along. Would I possibly have been able to withstand the hammer blows of the superior explanatory and predictive power of his theory? I don't know. All I can tell you is, is that he won the day. And he did not win it by conspiracy or anything. He had a better freaking argument. And everybody knew it. So essentially, everybody gave up geocentrism. And they had it, it all fits so perfectly, except for one tiny little detail. One thing I love about scientists, man, they're fanatical about hammering every nail down. They want to hammer every single nail down, God bless them for that, because there was one nail that they just couldn't hammer down for two centuries. They said, okay, we know the Earth's going around the sun, therefore we ought to be able to measure that motion directly by comparing the speed of light in one direction versus the speed of light in another direction. Obviously, if the Earth is moving, we should be able to measure that speed by recombining those two light beams. We know the speed of light. We know the speed of the Earth. If those beams are out of phase, that'll tell us exactly how fast we're going around the sun. And they did that for 200 years. And every time they did, they kept coming up with a rather disturbing answer. The answer was, we're not orbiting the sun. We do not have any evidence of that velocity. So at the end of the 19th century, this is only like 120 years ago or so, to 130 years ago, two guys in Cleveland at Case Western Reserve University, Michelson and Morley, they got Alexander Graham Bell, to put up the money to build what at that time was the most advanced scientific instrument that we had ever created, the Michelson-Morley interferometer, and this was going to nail the hammer. This was going to hammer the nail down once and for all. And lo and behold, that most sophisticated experiment in the history of physics up to that moment again showed that there was no evidence at all of any orbital motion of Earth around the Sun. So now we reach wow. that moment of truth. There's only two ways to interpret Michelson-Morley. There were some others that were put forward at the time, but none of them stand up. None of them can answer the observations except for two. Now, the first is, looks like the Catholic Church was right all along, boys. Let's get on down to Rome and start a nine-day novena to St. Robert Bellarmine. And that certainly wasn't in the cards. The other option was to reinvent physics from the ground up, toss Newton himself, which would have been absolutely unthinkable except for the fact that the other option was the novena to St. Robert Bellarmine in Rome. (laughs) Along comes Einstein, and Einstein says, okay, now try not to laugh, okay? Just hear me out here. What's happening is the rod on your Michelson interferometer is shrinking in the direction of motion, just enough to make it look like we're standing still. I know, I know, I know, it sounds crazy. But let me tell you, you either buy that or you're a geocentrist. Those are your choices. Wow. And relativity is eventually adopted precisely because it is the only way out. It is the only way to explain all of these puzzling failures and of course the the story of the principle is then the story of how every time we look further out into the universe what we see seems to put us at the center again edward hubble right up here on top of uh, mount wilson outside of los angeles here was the first guy to find out that guess what what we thought was the universe it's not the universe it's just a galaxy and there are a bunch more galaxies. And, <clears throat> pardon me, all those galaxies seem to be moving away from us. Now, guys, if I tell you that if you do a slow 360, if everything you can see is moving away from you, where does that put you?
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, the okay.
2: wow. Hubble almost melted down here. But again, it was Einstein to the rescue. And I said, th- this guy was so brilliant. It, it completely stuns me how, how brilliant this guy was. Because not only did was he able to persuade the world's smartest people that the rods were shrinking and the clocks were moving at different rates. Once they got the telescopes up and started seeing that all the galaxies were moving away from us, he said, Ah, ah, yes, it it looks like we're the center. But no, not really. Because space is curved. You see and curved in a very special way. It's it's way too complicated to explain here, but I'll give you the simple layman's version, which isn't quite accurate, but it's close enough for jazz. Let's say we have a balloon, right? And we take a magic marker and we dot Mickey Mouse out on that balloon. Now that's an organized non-random series of dots, right? It's Mickey Mouse. It's got ears and the face. Okay, so that's structure. That's non-random structure. Now we start blowing up the balloon, right? And notice that every one of those Mickey Mouse dots starts moving away from every other Mickey Mouse dot, which means if you were sitting on one of those dots, it would look like you were the center. And even more importantly, as you blow the balloon up, Mickey Mouse disappears. There's no Mickey Mouse there anymore because those dots are moving away from each other in such a way that they become random. The information, the structure of Mickey Mouse is lost as you blow up that balloon. So what Einstein said was, think of space as as a three-dimensional equivalent of that two-dimensional balloon surface. The galaxies are the dots. And the expansion of the universe is the blowing up of the balloon. So as we expand, it would look from every one of those dots, from every one of those galaxies, as if everything was moving away from you. But it's not true. It's just that the whole surface is curved and it is expanding. How brilliant is that, right? <laughs>
1: he's like, mm-hmm. a, he's like just, a scientific politician. He's, Seems like an explanation.
0: He's a genius, man.
2: Okay, so that was so persuasive, and again, everybody, they breathed a sigh of relief when he came along with the shrinking rods, now they breathe an even bigger sigh of relief as they realize that this doesn't mean that we're the center of the universe after all. Okay, so now we fast forward. We finally get to the point where we are able to put up sensors far enough away from the earth and shielded sufficiently from the sun that we can look out and actually see all the way out to where there are no more galaxies. And we look past that and we see these things called quasars. And we look and we finally get to the point where there are no more quasars. And what do we get to? We get to what they call the cosmic microwave background, which, under Big Bang assumptions, is the first light, the first imprint of light available to us in the universe is what they call the surface of last scattering on the cosmic microwave background. First light in the universe, guys. And it's supposed to confirm Einstein's idea. No up, no down, no left, no right. It's like the surface of a balloon. As it gets bigger, there's no structure, no patterns. But it isn't. This comes back to this idea of this axis of evil. When they started looking at this what they call the surface of last scattering the cosmic microwave background you see it in the film it's supposed to be random you know there'll be a hot spot over here and a cold spot over here but average them out over the entire surface the entire sphere enclosing the whole universe it's not supposed to have any patterns on it but it does it picks out a special direction that's not supposed to be there. It tells us that there is, in fact, an up, a down, a left, and a right, and there's not supposed to be. And freakishly, freakishly, that special direction is related to the one place in the universe we know there are people smart enough to build telescopes and notice. How many coincidences are we prepared to explain away? Here? Wow. So wow. that that's the state of the of the play. And that's why the principle, I, I, I just, I have to tell you, I knew when I made this film that we were about five years too early. I didn't expect us to be subjected to the biggest media assault that's ever been, <laughs> that's... Ever been launched on the science film in, in history. Right. But I did know that it would be five years before people really started to to, to understand what was at stake here. The irony is the assault on the film has actually redounded to our advantage. It wasn't pleasant to go through, let me tell you. But we did go through it. And it has had the effect of dramatically accelerating the time when these matters are going to have to be acknowledged and dealt with publicly. They can't be swept under the rug. If you remember, uh, Michio also said something very interesting in the film about Dark Matter. Dark Matter said, uh, Michio said that um, for many a decade a secret was swept under the carpet in in the cosmology about the fact that the galaxies weren't obeying the laws of gravity when they spun. And for several decades, this was just basically talked about in the journals and talked about when they left their pies down and had a few drinks, but certainly they weren't going on television and telling us that the galaxies weren't obeying the laws of gravity. And only when they had an explanation they thought they could make stick, which was dark matter, did they admit that galaxies are not obeying the laws of gravity unless you add in this dark matter well it's very much the same thing with the Copernican principle and the axis of evil um I watch the literature very closely and believe me they're very aware of the principle and are not happy about it for example you won't find the phrase axis of evil used anymore in the literature um you'll you'll hear instead things like um oh what was one I came across one yeah here's one. Non trivial topological non Gaussianity on the surface of last scattering. Let me say that.
0: Ooh, <laughs> yeah, I like that.
2: Let, let me run this one off the top. How tone. many non <laughs> trivial topological non Gaussianity on the surface of last scattering. What does that mean? That means the axis of evil, but only like five guys who are laymen in the world will be able to figure that out. (laughs) So what we have is they know very well. I didn't discover this. These guys discovered this. The only thing I brought to the table was I said, hey, you know, doesn't this kind of like remind you of the old Earth-centered universe idea?
1: (laughs) You know, that's really, it's an interesting point because that is sort of the, the, the main idea behind the film that. That, you know, I walked away with feeling kind of good about uh, just my whole perspective of the universe in terms of, you know, uh, my worldview, because it's, it seems like there is this gap, right? Publicly, it's like the, the faith community and the science community are at odds. Right. And, and and when you really start thinking about it, and you point this out in the film brilliantly, um, you know, the, the the community of science seems to just be coming out with theories upon theories that don't really compute. They don't work together right. very well and, right. and they have to they, they have to do that to try to explain the data and what you suggest in the film is that let's not do that let's just take the data for what it is exactly. and come up with a theory around that and and that's more scientific if you really want to be honest with you know with yourself
2: well i, I completely agree guns but i, I in, in fairness i gotta point out the other side of this coin okay remember Science has had an absolutely incredible run for 400 years. These guys have done the miracles, right? They firmly believe in the heart of hearts that they can't have been wrong about something like this. They just can't. There's no way they are going to surrender the Copernican enterprise 400 years in. It would be almost as shocking as the Catholic Church giving up on geocentrism in the face of Newton. History is full of ironies, and the ironies really abound here, because in many ways, the scientific enterprise faces a very similar situation today to what the Church faced at the time of Galileo. They, Who's going to say the Bible? The whole world was run by the Catholic Church. I mean, basically, everybody who lived in the Western world said, if the Church says it, it must be true. If it's in the Bible, it must be true. And if you don't believe that, you're not only crazy, you're a heretic, and we're going to burn you! (laughs) <laughs> okay? That is how serious it was back then. now thank god they 're not burning people at the stake i 'm very happy and I think that 's progress, and I want to applaud science for not burning me at the stake, even though they certainly did everything short of that uh, in terms of you know trying to destroy my film, but that 's okay because you know that's just that 's an intellectual battle right This is a controversial film. I expected it to have a hard time. I just didn 't expect a degree of hysteria but the point i 'm trying to make these guys are firmly convinced that this cannot be. There's no way they could have gotten something so basic and so fundamental wrong for 400 years. Now, I'm here to tell you I'm going on record right now. They have gotten it wrong for 400 years. And they can only stretch this out for about five to seven more years. The Mission that we cover in the film, the Planck mission, which recorded in 2013 is the last science we're going to have on this axis of evil for about five to seven more years. There's no new science going to be happening. Uh, Anything that they do will be just kicking the data around and coming up with different things. The next batch of new data will be the definitive batch, and that will be um, about five to seven years downstream when the next generation of what they call the square kilometer array telescopes and Gans, you know, you and me both, I love Max Tegmark. He's one of the most fascinating minds I've ever encountered, and I think he's the star of the film, in my personal opinion. Max is very deeply involved with this square kilometer array telescope thing, and when I first talked to him in 2011, he explained to me how it's going to work, and I can tell you That sometime between 2022 and 2025, these babies are going online. And all of the questions about the axis of evil, about the preferred direction, about the Earth orientation of the largest structures in the universe, this is their last chance to make them go away. Their last, very last chance. I'm going to go on record. I'm going to tell you right now. They're not going away. They're real. And at that point, they'll have had five to seven more years to try to figure this out and explain it in such a way that it does the minimum damage to the credibility of the scientific enterprise. Very much like the Catholic Church had to spend quite a lot of time figuring out how to explain that it really isn't necessary to believe in geocentrism, even though Galileo would have been shocked to, to learn that. Right. Um, so we are in the process now where science is facing its Galileo moment. It will be fascinating to see how they handle it compared to how uh, the church handled it when they were running things.
1: Right, right. on the science is the modern-day church almost. But uh,
2: exactly. But that's that's my whole point is that we really, to the extent that we have any faith at all, we have it in science. To the extent we have a priesthood at all, it's the scientist. And um, there's great civilizational implications for shaking that pillar. Uh, but nonetheless, the pillar is definitely shaking. At the very highest levels, it has done fallen over already. And they're looking at ways to explain it in such ways that they can save as much of standard cosmology as possible. My personal opinion is it's all going down, and it's all going down in our lifetimes.
1: Yeah, that's really
0: wow. exciting. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, the, you've stated it before the church and, and different faiths around the world have had to sort of adapt to the scientific uh, belief that the earth was not the center of the universe. And now I feel like, we're, you know, people are going to have to start figuring out how to take it back. Um, well, it's
2: very, very interesting. You should mention that basil. Our biggest and most vicious opposition did not come from the atheists, did not even come from the scientists when they launched their attack on how I tricked them. Still trying to figure out how I got them to move their lips like that. (laughs) But the real serious visceral, if you want to read the most vile, vicious hatred against this film, it came from the Catholics. And the reason for that is very simple. I mean, you guys, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember Patty Hearst. Do you remember Patty Hearst? Oh, yeah. Okay. So she gets kidnapped. By the Symbionese Liberation Army. And we're chasing after her for months and months. Then one day she shows up and she's wearing the beret and she's doing bank jobs with them. Yeah. And this led to the identification of what they call Stockholm Syndrome, where you begin to identify with your captor. You begin to take on the color of personality of whoever is, is able to defeat you. And in a very real sense, the most traumatic event the Catholic Church has ever gone through was the Galileo Affair. That was the very first time that it was forced to climb down off of a position that, while it was never infallibly defined, it was nevertheless universally believed and taught at a very high level. And this was the very first time that they had to climb down off of something like that. So the very difficult process of doing that is very much disturbed by my inconvenient film. (laughs) Uh, The one thing nobody ever considers when they look at the Galileo affair is, what if the church was right all along? Certainly the Catholics don't like that because they just spent 40 or 50 years trying to get, get things right with science again. So here along comes these crazy guys making this movie, and they're saying that the church had it right all along. Uh, so, the interesting thing about this film is it has absolutely no allies in the world. I wow. mean, if I make a film about, you know, uh, if I make a film about abortion, right? Well, I got a built in bunch of people who are for it, and I got a built in bunch of people who are against it. Yay team, boo team. You get, you know, that's the way most films like this go. A very controversial film will have a constituency, and it will have an opposition, and they yell at each other, and, you know, some people go see it, and there you go. The principle is very different in that it has no natural allies anywhere in the world. The church is opposed because they don't want to revisit this uncomfortable thing. The atheists are opposed because they all, you're trying to smuggle Catholicism back into science. Uh, the fundamentalist Christians are opposed because they don't want to be thought like they're crazy for believing that the geocentric teachings of the Bible are actually there. We really have no allies, which is interesting. Because having no allies forced us to learn very quickly how to fight a lot of people at the same time to keep the film from being just buried under the avalanche of criticism because the film and I I look, I mean, I'm not exactly the world's most uh, objective commentator here, but I have to tell you, I worked very hard to make this a very, very good film because I knew that it would be at least five years and maybe as long as 10 before people would even understand what we were really talking about. So I bent over backwards to make the film good enough that it would last for five years, that for five years, this would still be the movie that people went to. And I think we've succeeded in that. I can tell you that there is a massive growth in the amount of people who are hearing about this film. And it's purely organic. You know, this really is organic. I mean, we, we don't have, you know, a, a big following out there. We just have numbers of people who contact this film, watch it, get interested, tell their friends. They come to our Facebook page. It's just expanding very, very rapidly. But we did this without any natural allies, which means we're not beholden to anyone. We owe nothing to nobody except our wonderful investors, of course. <laughs> so
1: so nice. we're,
2: we're, we're in a position now where I expect, and again, you know, this is just my opinion, I expect that the profile and the perception of the quality of this film is going to rise rapidly over the next several years. And I believe at a certain point in time, the issues are going to have to be addressed in an intellectually honest, fair fashion instead of just saying, oh, he's a crazy geocentrist anti-Semite creep, don't pay any attention to him. Which, let's face it, that's ridiculous. So, I think as you watch this film, the story of, the, you know, a film usually has, what, 12 weeks in the theaters and then it goes to DVD and then, you know, hey, it's, you know, it's on the late, late, late show. The principal is not going to be one of those films. This film is going to continue to uh to gain in influence and gain in perception uh for at least the next five to seven years the only way this film doesn't actually secure a place for itself i think in history is if those square kilometer array telescopes turn out to prove it was all a mistake right, right i right, don't right. think that's gonna happen so i think that people can spend many years many years um watching this film checking the references, go online, check what Michio said, check what Larry said, check what Max Tegmark said, check what Bob St. Janus and the other geocentrists in the film said. Because this is much more than an arcane, you know, question about physics. This gets to the very heart of what it means to be human. And it is the question, the beautiful thing about cosmology. Cosmology is that science, which most closely bumps up against metaphysics and theology. Right. Yeah. It is that point of intersection. And therefore, it is always the most influential of all the physical sciences. Yeah. It, it tells us who and what we are in the cosmos. So, you know, I'm just, I'm very, I'm, I'm very grateful actually to the many people, many of whom, by, by the way, don't agree with me, uh, many of whom they're not so sure that they like my approach. But they were committed to the intellectual uh, fairness of what I was raising. One guy, uh, he was a Jewish guy, uh, old film hand, been in the film business for decades. He, He heard about the film. He contacted me. He said, look, Rick, I just wanted to call you because one of my best friends in the business is a big student of Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, Karl Popper. And I talk a lot about Karl Popper when I do interviews. I'm a big fan of Popper. I believe he has the correct philosophy of science. But he said, now don't take this the wrong way, Rick. I think you're absolutely crazy. But I love, (laughs) I love you're crazy. And I love the way you use Popper. And so we got to talking. And he said he was in the promotion. He was in the film promotion business. And he said, look, I'm willing to take your film on and do some promotion for you. But you have to make me one promise. I said, what's that? He said, you have to promise me that you're never going to ask me to watch your i said why (laughs) he said because if i watch your film i'll realize that you're crazy and i won't be able to sell it right right and i said okay you got 24 hours to watch this film if you haven't watched it in 24 hours i'm never talking i'm never taking another one of your phone calls he watched the film and he writes me back he didn't even wait we screened it down in hollywood and, and, and he was there he writes me an email that night and he says I can count on one hand the number of films that I've seen in my life that really have the potential to change the world, and by golly, yours is one of them. Uh, so it's guys like that. You know, he couldn't be further apart from me. He's a non-observant Jew, doesn't you know, have any kind of, uh, of acceptance of, of my religion of the Catholic faith. Uh, we couldn't be further apart in politics, and, but we're great friends because. We both have a commitment to the fact that this battle should be a fair fight. This should be an intellectual battle. We should respect each other's humanity. And we got to let the other guy score a point when he scores a point. Right. You know, and because of that, um, the film is succeeding. The film is finding an audience. And uh, it's guys like you letting me come on here and talk on your show.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, You know, many thousands of people are going to hear about this for the first time because of your generosity and your willingness to say, hey, let the guy have a shot, you know? So I I deeply appreciate all of you guys who are doing this for us right now.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to make you famous, buddy. Don't even worry about it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have a question, and, you know, I'm sure this is visited in the film, um, which I am now planning on watching, uh, but if it is found that the, the... the data is there, and the the interpretation of the data uh, that's expressed in the movie is found to be more correct than originally assumed. Um, I mean, what are the kind of ramifications, just first in secular society, uh, as well as the, the scientific world?
2: And what a great question. Here's the way, the best I can see it is this. We have two fundamental ways of looking at this. We look at it as a scientific question. That's strictly and solely a matter of the freaking interpretation in the model. Right. It, science might be able to tell us that we're at the center of the universe, however you want to define center. The way we define it in the film is, as Larry Krauss says, the largest structures in the cosmos are arranged around us. That's essentially what we mean by center of the universe. Well, science can possibly tell us that, but it cannot possibly tell us a single thing about what that might mean. That's not science's job. Right. So the next question becomes, what does it mean? And that's the really interesting question. Because if we start looking up at the sky again, and instead of seeing ourselves as a pale blue dot lost in the vast infinite recesses of some forgotten backwater galaxy, That's going to have a dramatic impact on the kind of civilization and culture we create for ourselves. If we become, again, persuaded on the basis of the best evidence that this is a designed universe, ergo God, ergo purpose, planning, and, you know, an obligation, well, what's that going to mean? I I don't know. I can't say. It's certainly not going to mean a return to the medieval uh, hierarchical civilization. I don't think I just don't see that in the cards. Right. But I do see a change away from the nihilistic. We're insignificant and the future's miserable. I don't think that's going to last another generation. <laughs> I really yeah. don't. I think that's going to go down. What's going to be fascinating is how we balance. Cause it's a balancing act. We, We have a fabulous tool in physical science. It's just fabulous. It works. There's something true about it, right? And on the other hand, we have new evidence that some of the most ancient traditions of our race were somehow communicating to us something that it took science 500 years to figure out. How do you put those two pieces of the puzzle together? I don't know, but it's like I say at the end of the film. Hopefully... We can do it better this time around.
1: Right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, you had mentioned that Max Tegmark, who's a, a physics professor at MIT, he, you know, you said he was a star of the film. And yeah, I could relate to that in, in just sort of his approach. And he's the guy that uh, sort of discovered this axis of evil, or, or I think it was described as, as a spherical harmonics yeah. in the film. Yeah, and, he, uh, he was
2: the first guy to see it. He was the first guy to see it, right? And he's
1: and and I guess this is a, a two part question. I I, I don't want to get obviously too technical or anything, but I'm curious about the the method of collecting the data uh, in terms of you know the telescopes and and you know things that look deep into space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's the confidence there? How do we know how far something is? And and you know, how do we know that what's being projected or the data we're receiving is what it is in terms of galaxies and the size of things, you know, is that is that stuff pretty established and firm? Yeah,
2: yeah, it is. It's quite firm. Now, understand that there are certain assumptions that underlie all of these observations. I think Halton art who recently uh, passed away, I think last year, uh, was a great maverick astrophysicist. He was drummed out of uh, a very prominent position here in America because he has some problems with some of these basic assumptions. And here's, here is here's the most basic assumption of cosmology. When we point our telescope out at these objects, we see that the spectral lines of certain uh, basic uh, um, elements, hydrogen, silicon, etc., these give off a characteristic signal, which we pick up in our telescopes. And We notice that the further out something seems to be, the more those spectral signatures are shifted toward the lower end of the spectrum. They call it redshift. And um, this is how we determine how far away they are, by the way. Um, The degree of redshifting of these objects means distance and recessionary velocity in our cosmology. Now, Halton Arp found evidence that he was very, very convinced, falsified that basic assumption. I was actually going to put Halton Arp in the film, but he's so interesting that he's worth a film of his own, and I couldn't really pack him in. But here's what he said, and this is something really worth keeping in mind. In cosmology, he said, all we have are photons impacting our collector's and an X, Y, and Z axis. All else is interpretation. Mm, mm, Very powerful thing to keep in mind. Now, they have a very persuasive set of arguments that the more redshifted something is, that means the faster it's receding from us. And if the universe is in fact expanding then that would tell us how far away it is. Hubble gave, you know, Hubble gave us the Hubble constant. That constant is the expansion rate, how fast things are moving apart from each other as the universe expands. If that is true, then the data presented in the film are, are, are completely uh, reliable. Here's why. As we look out at the galaxies, the further away they are, the higher the redshift. The higher the redshift, the more different they are in structure and composition than the ones that are closer to us. Finally, we get past the galaxies altogether, and we get to objects that are very high redshifts. And these are the quasars, and these behave in ways that normal galaxies do not behave. And then if we go even further to higher and higher and higher redshifts, we eventually get to this cosmic microwave background. Now, here's why I believe them about the cosmic microwave background. It is the only radiation we have ever encountered that comes to us pretty uniformly from all directions of the sky with no discrete emitting source. It's the only radiation we've ever found. We don't see a source for it But it's everywhere, and it's the highest redshift object we've ever encountered. You put those things together, and it's a pretty darn good argument to say this is the earliest. This is the first. Matter of fact, there's nothing else we'll ever be able to see beyond that, because this is a time when there were no galaxies, when there were no quasars, when there was no large-scale structure in the universe except for that surface of last scattering of the CMB. I believe they have a very persuasive argument that that is what it is. If that is true, then our present view of the universe has just been blown up into a tiny pile of smithereens. We are obviously in a very special place in the universe. The largest structures in the universe are arranged around us, literally set like a like a jewel piece. So that everywhere in the universe, there's almost like an origin of a coordinate system right here on Earth. It's like, uh, remember uh, the old Star Trek movies when we were fighting the Borg? They'd always be on their way to Sector 001, right? And Sector 001 was Earth, right? Right. Well, it seems like we really are Sector 001. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think think that... um, you know, reasonable people are going to still try and find explanations. You know, for a long time, people thought it might be a dust cloud Uh, and some very persuasive arguments way back back around 2006 and 2007 that this axis of evil was just a local interference effect. I won't go into the gory details, but we didn't fund our film until that one had been taken off the table. Right. Uh, And it was taken off the table. Um, In my opinion, and it's just my opinion, I am absolutely persuaded that these guys have, in fact, found the largest structure in the cosmos that we will ever be able to see. I mean, if there's anything beyond that, we'll never see it because the light won't have time to reach us. The axis of evil is real. It is a fundamental fact of reality. What it means, many different people can have many different explanations about what it means. But the photons impacting our collectors and the X, Y, and Z axis, they're telling us that there's a special direction in the universe and it's related to us. And that is so profoundly impactful for how we view our place and our significance in the cosmos that I fully expect the Big Bang story will go away within 20 to 40 years. What it will be replaced by, I'm not nearly smart enough to even begin to to speculate.
0: Wow. Now... Gosh, there's just so much, I gotta say, you're, you're, you do a great job of explaining this kind of stuff. Um, now obviously getting the scientific community to, to jump on board is going to be a difficult thing. Uh, you know, we like to think that if the evidence presents itself, that the scientific community will, will go ahead and, uh, you know, follow suit.
2: Yeah, just like the just like the priests, man. You just show them one thing that doesn't fit, and they're going to be right with you, right? <laughs> no, you know. Here's the, yeah. thing. Here's the thing, guys. We have a lot invested in the standard model of cosmology. Yeah, we have a great deal in and it's been a, a model. It's been triumphant for for decades. Um, the problem is, at what point? Like, think about Ptolemy, right? For a thousand years, Ptolemy had a beautiful system. We could figure out when to worship and when to plant the crops, and we knew what the month was, and it was, we had a calendar. It was because of Ptolemy, right? But boy, we had to keep adding these little epicycles and fix this over here, and okay, we'll make it do a little curly cue over there. And at a certain point, it just became so cumbersome, Right? My opinion is that we are in a very similar situation with standard cosmology. We are adding in so many things like dark matter and dark energy and inflation and multiverses. It's just clear to me and and, and strictly on an intuitive level that we're seeing the same thing here that we saw around the time that that Copernicus came on. Because, I mean, like I say in the film... Copernicus got involved in this whole thing because the Pope said, hey, guys, we need to fix the calendar. We need a more accurate calendar. Can you guys give some thought to how we might get a better calendar going? We need to figure out when to celebrate Easter, okay? Right. And that's where this all begins, is in trying to measure time more effectively and efficiently. And the reason Copernicus won was because his model was simpler and more elegant, He didn't have a shred of evidence for it. That didn't come along until Newton. But people gravitated toward it for a reasonable basis. I mean, it was simpler, heck of a lot simpler. And they got rid of all these epicycles, or at least that's the PR. If you really look at this, Copernicus had more epicycles than Ptolemy. But at first glance, it seemed to be a simpler and more logical system. I think we're reaching the point where both particle physics and cosmology are huge, ungainly Rube-Goldberg contraptions. It's amazing that they don't collapse of their own weight. But we are reaching that point, I believe, where Imri Lakatos, the philosopher of science, calls it the paradigm oh no, that was Thomas Kuhn, actually calls it the paradigm shift, where you just put one too many straws on the camel's back. And all of a sudden, this camel that has been able to carry everything for so long, can't carry another thing, and it just goes down. I think we're really at that point. They really have reached a dead end. They cannot model this universe under their theories.
1: Right. That, you, it's interesting you bring up particle physics, because that was kind of the, the thread of my next question, which is the quantum theories, you know, quantum yeah. physics. And you know, mm-hmm. there's mention of the quantum foam in the film and, you know, little baby universes forming all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, how do these concepts of the quantum realm and what they're discovering, you know, how does it inform the the data from the, from the, or the cosmological data that's been collected?
2: Well, the the biggest thing is this. It's what Michio said about 10 to the 120th power. If we take quantum physics, and guys, let me tell you something. The, the most freakish thing in the world, if you ever, ever, ever see me really feeling confident, I'm going to do my doc on quantum physics. Because that's the most freakish thing in the world. Nobody has the faintest idea why it works, but it works to eight decimal places. Eight decimal places. That is so freakish. It's beyond belief. When you take that eight decimal place accurate quantum theory and you apply it to cosmology, the answers are so stupendously wrong. (laughs) (laughs) 10 to the 120 power, that something's got to give. Because we have two great theories, right? Relativity deals with the large. Quantum deals with the small. Quantum is accurate to eight decimal places. Relativity is okay if you add in 96% of the universe out of thin air. Which one of those two is going to stand? I got news for you. It ain't going to be relativity. At the end of the day, quantum physics is stupendously accurate in modeling the small the very very small but it can't they can't come up with a quantum physics that's got gravity in it they've been trying for decades and decades and they can't get gravity into the quantum domain obviously our entire view of reality is based on gravity in the classical domain or in the in the domain of the large in the domain of the uh, visible there's a big problem here, guys. We've taken a wrong turn somewhere because we can't reunify the small and the large. We're off by 10 to the 120th power when we try to do so. We've taken a wrong turn somewhere. Um, I don't have time to go into what I think the resolution between the two areas is, but I will just mention a very brilliant uh, physicist and mathematician, and Catholic theologian by the name of Wolfgang Smith, out of Harvard and, uh, 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 I believe, Columbia. A uh, Very obscure guy. He never pursued any kind of academic uh, brilliance, but he has written a book called The Quantum Enigma. And I highly, highly recommend The quantum enigma, because he puts forth in the quantum enigma a way to resolve that 10 to the 120th degree uh, contradiction. And he puts forth a way to resolve why it appears when you look at the quantum level, the universe seems entirely random. Not only random because we can't measure it, but random by nature, which is, of course, ridiculous. It can't be random by nature because that quantum universe yields. A universe that we live in where I can tell you exactly what time the sun is going to rise tomorrow. That's not random. So there's this puzzling contradiction between the apparent randomness of the quantum domain and the apparent determinism of the physical domain. And the brilliant achievement of Dr. Wolfgang Smith is to put forth what I consider to be a shockingly brilliant way to resolve that apparent contradiction. But you are right, Gons. We won't make any fundamental progress until we find a way to resolve this stupendous contradiction between the quantum domain and the domain of general relativity. One of them's got to give. I think it's going to be general relativity.
0: Do you think that, uh, you know, if the finding does conclude that the Earth is the center of the universe, that that might give... Some new math or some new perspective on how to, uh, how to uh, reconcile relativity with the quantum world?
2: Well, in my opinion, the confirmation of what we suggest in the film, if in seven years when the square kilometer arrays report, if they finally have to say, look, we're going back to, we're going back to the blackboard here because we occupy a ridiculously significant and privileged position in the universe, we have to rethink this. I think at the next logical step is that general relativity collapses and is abandoned. It is possible in general relativity to put the Earth at the center of the universe. It is possible. But you have to use very different solutions to the Einstein equations. And,
0: and gravity needs to be questioned at that well,
2: point. Well, no, gravity probably. still works. Einstein gravity still works with Earth at the center of the universe. The problem is You can't, you can no longer assume that the universe is the same everywhere. You can no longer assume there's no up, no down, no left, no right. And you have to use completely different solutions to the Einstein equations. Now, there are guys already doing that. George Ellis in the film has a whole bunch of researchers all over the world who are pursuing these other solutions that would allow us to be in a special place maybe they can make it work. My personal opinion, and it's nothing more than that, is that they won't be able to make it work because the universe doesn't work according to general relativity. The universe actually does present us with a preferred frame for physics. There's one place in the universe where the speed of light is constant, and that is here. And that constancy of the speed of light disappears if you are moving with respect to the center of mass of the earth. Now, We already have evidence of that. It's called the Global Positioning Satellite System. If you look at the range equation on the GPS, the speed of light is treated as constant with respect to one and exactly one frame, and that's the center of mass of the Earth. If you are in an airplane and you are moving, GPS treats you as if the speed of light is not constant. This is already built into our GPS programming. And In my opinion, that is a falsification of relativity. The speed of light is not constant for all observers. It is constant for observers who are not moving with respect to the preferred frame for physics, which is the the Earth. If that radical and and completely shocking idea uh, is verified over the next 10 years, then I think relativity goes. I think that we go back to a sort of Machian-Newton type of approach, and we try to construct a physics that is capable of accommodating a preferred absolute frame for physics. Um, remarkably enough, um, we're already doing it you know, in the GPS, for example. In GPS, the speed of light is not constant if you're moving with respect to the Earth. The speed of light is your velocity plus or minus the constant uh, uh, if you're moving with respect to the Earth. That's already built, I mean, you you read the range equation itself, that's built into GPS. If GPS tried to treat our motion the way Einstein says our motion should be, planes would crash. Um, so we're very close to that paradigm shift. My guess is that we will resolve some of the puzzling things about cosmology. But The quantum resolution requires something even deeper. And the only guy I have ever found who has thought it through in such a way that I am persuaded he's onto something here is Dr. Wolfgang Smith and his book, The Quantum Enigma, which I highly, highly recommend. Someday I hope to do a documentary about Dr. Smith.
0: Well, we'll definitely have to check that one out too. Now, I'm going to go into some dangerous territory here but I think only because of what we've been dealing with in maybe the past year or so. And as long as we're on the subject of world uh, worldview shattering cosmological, you know, the theories or findings or whatever you want to call it. One of the big things that has gained a lot of popularity over the past year is the flat earth theory. And, you know, the, again, f- from what I hear from you, I mean, the evidence for the heliocentrism, I mean, it, it, there's much better and much more scientific um, evidence from what I've heard for you for than most of what I've heard for the uh, flat earth theory. But it does kind of have that same feel of, you know, moving backwards. Suspending, the, is... suspending
1: the belief.
2: Brilliant question. Let me tell you guys the truth. Okay, Flat earth is a psyop. It is a PSYOP that was launched, not coincidentally, right around the time the principle was released. Mm. Uh, It again emanates from certain Catholic circles who wanted to shut us down. If you wanted to discredit geocentrism, the first thing you do is tie it to flat earth, so that every time you hear geocentrism, the next thing you hear is flat earth. Brilliant. Interesting. If you look at the Google searches, as a matter of fact, you can go to our website, and if you Google, flat earth is not the answer, the principle. You'll come to a article that was uh, done where a guy went back and looked at the Google search terms on flat Earth, and they take off like a rocket in October of 2014, which happens to be the month that the principle was released. And this thing was suddenly everywhere. Absolutely, every time I I remember because I was in Chicago opening the film, and every time I Google the principle or geocentrism, flat Earth would be everywhere on my page. (laughs) And I go, somebody is putting some serious money to get these links up on Google so high. What in the heck is going on? And it turns out that, you know, some of the clever guys who really despise us in the Catholic Church, They went back and they said, oh, okay, so they're going to interpret the scriptures literally for geocentrism. Let's have them interpret the scriptures literally for flat earth. It's a dome, you see. And so we're going to make them look stupid by saying, well, if you believe geocentrism, you must believe flat earth. Well, somebody grabbed that and ran with it as a psyop.
0: Yeah, a lot of people did.
2: Oh, no, it's incredible. It's incredible. See, here's here's the appeal. Here's the beautiful appeal. Okay. Everybody knows everything's wobbling right now everybody knows they're being lied to right now. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could actually say that every single thing you've been taught in your whole life is a complete load of hooey and you're being conspiratorially lied to. There are no satellites. We've never been to the moon. The moon is a little light up about 3,000 miles above us and so is the sun. And there's a dome above us. And that's the earth is flat. All of a sudden, you... Are the keeper of the secret. It's gnosticism on steroids. You you have the secret, and you and your friends are the only ones who have cracked the code, and you now have evangelical fire in your belly to go out there and you know spread the word. Now, people are tired of having their religious views, their cultural views spat upon by the scientific elites. But They can't fight these guys. They don't know calculus. If you can find a way to say the whole thing is just a hoax, boy, what an an attractive world to enter where you can be Einstein, where you can be Kepler, where you can be Galileo because you know the secret, right? It's, 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 It's an incredibly powerful and persuasive psychological operation. It has taken off like a rocket and it was in fact launched In my opinion, I have circumstantial, but certainly only circumstantial evidence that Flat Earth was deployed as a psyop with big money behind it to divert attention away from the principle and to sort of set in everybody's mind the idea, well, all geocentrism, oh, yeah, that's like Flat Earth. And they've had a certain degree of success, but Flat Earth can be falsified instantly in 40 seconds' time, completely 100%. All you have to do is notice, and verify for yourself, don't take my word for it, notice that we observe stars to rotate around a north polar axis every night. It happens every single night, go check. That's fine for Earth. If the Earth was flat, we would expect that the stars would rotate around the north polar axis every night. So far, so good. Problem is, is, that if you go south of the equator, we see different stars, and they are orbiting a south-polar axis, and that crashing sound that you just heard.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so it's completely falsified, and I am a great believer in Karl Popper's philosophy of science. Science is falsification. Science can never prove anything. All science can do is falsify something. Albert Einstein actually said this best. He said... No amount of experimentation can ever prove me right, but a single experiment can prove me wrong. Now that's science, man. That's science. I falsified flat Earth in 40 seconds. They've been trying to falsify geocentrism for 400 years, and they still haven't been able to do it. So it really is an, an appeal to ignorance to try and paste flat Earth and geocentrism together. Uh, I'm not saying it wasn't a brilliant tactical ploy by the opposition. It was, but these are brilliant guys. Uh, They're not stupid, okay? Uh, But I think it's kind of unfair. All you have to do to get me to stop yapping about geosupportism is give me a repeatable, crucial experiment that falsifies it. The smartest guys in the world have been trying to do that for 400 years, and they haven't been able to. Flat Earth can be falsified in 40 seconds. Anybody who spends another second on it after that, it's a psychological issue. It's certainly not a scientific issue. Mm.
0: Yeah, uh, I feel like maybe in some way the people who have locked, latched on to the flat Earth theory, um, you know, they may be, like you said, they may know they're getting lied to. They may know that something's wrong. Things aren't the way that they the, have been told that they are. And perhaps they were just looking for heliocentrism.
2: I'm Instead telling you, of you've of nailed it. Basil. What we want more than anything else in this world is a sense of revelation, a sense of belonging to a community that has the answer. That you know, we're deprived of this because we've lost our faith in religion. We're becoming a post-religious civilization. Science is trying to create this new pseudo-scientific religion of multiverses and so on. But it doesn't really have much meat on its bones, really. You're insignificant and the future's miserable. That's not really, uh, that doesn't strike me as likely to take the world <laughs> on. So, we're not getting the spiritual sustenance that we need from either the watered-down modern Catholic Church. Which uh, What the hell do they believe anymore, anyway? Seems to change every week. So there's no, none of that solidity, none of that elegant, intellectually profoundly brilliant, consistent theology that we associated with the church for centuries. That's gone. Certainly science can't really get us all excited about we're insignificant and the future is miserable. So people are looking for ways to extract meaning, purpose, and unfortunately, for the illogical and the anti-rational, the more ridiculous, the better. The more absurd, the better, because that means the only test is can you remain faithful no matter what? Mm. And if you can, boy, you rise right to the top of the flat Earth movement. I mean, uh, um, I don't debate flat Earthers anymore. I did for about a year, and we we had a monumental debate on our flat on our Facebook page where we invited all the flat Earthers to come in, and we had about a ten thousand post war on our Facebook page.
0: Wow, did you submit that to the Guinness book?
2: (laughs) We should have, because it was monumental. But at the end of that debate, I said, look, guys, the reason I had this debate is that you are entitled to the same thing I'm asking the mainstream for, a fair hearing. Uh, I couldn't, I'd have to go to confession if I denied you guys that while I insisted on that from the mainstream scientific press. You've had it. We've had a 10,000 post-war here, and you guys have been absolutely demolished. I will not talk about Flat Earth on this page anymore. But never let it be said that I did so arbitrarily, or I did so with a sneering dismissive, you know, nobody's going to take you to... No, we examined your arguments, and they have been found wanting, to say the very freaking least. So, we don't really discuss Flat Earth on my page anymore. I'll tell you, they... They have a love hate relationship with us. They're they're the only people I know who almost every week they steal my film and put it up on YouTube. Nobody else does. Not even the atheists steal my film. God bless them. (laughs) They they buy my film. I got investors to pay back, you know. But the flat earthers consider themselves, you know, entitled to rip my film and they have a love hate relationship with it because they use my film to undermine confidence in the status quo. Right. Yep. But. They then attempt to, you know, donkey tag it under this ridiculous uh, flat earth notion. So I kind of have a problem with the flat earthers. But then again, these guys are victims of a modern education. They have never learned really the history of the intellect. How did we learn the earth was a sphere 2,000 years before we saw that it was a sphere? Eratosthenes. They haven't worked through these things. They haven't learned what a scientific experiment is. They haven't learned what falsification is, and they haven't been taught logic. So I have a, a certain degree of compassion for them, and I just hope that uh, that this terrible tendency that we all are experiencing now—to withdraw into our own little intellectual cocoons, where we, you know, we, we comfort each other. Uh, instead of challenging one another uh, that's a very bad sign because it, it means it means that we're losing the ability to unify around principles that 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 can stand up to the to the socratic method to the socratic acid of the test uh, I, I just think that' it's, it's part of the reaction to this sense that everybody has that the pillars are, are wobbling Um, and I think that's what we're seeing with flatter.
1: Yeah. It's, you bring up some really interesting points because, you know, I I noticed this phenomenon uh, a few years ago when, you know, the idea of a new world order became very prominent in sort of the alternative internet community. And a lot of people, you know, they, they, it resonated with people because they, they were able to identify with something that. Um, they were feeling which was you know we're being lied to we're being you know Mm -hmm. the 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 government is not exactly what we thought and those types of ideas but they really i feel in that you know time a few years ago they really filled the gap that's created with the with a lot of new agey ideas you know like ascension and you'll be god in 2012 and it feels like they're using the same tactic almost but using you know ideas like flat earth or or i don't know if you feel okay. Mandal effect is one of those things as well or not, but yeah. um, it's interesting to see, you know, and that's, I, I noticed it right away, you know, uh, not, you know, specifically pertaining to your film, but just the movement in general is just very strange, strange how it popped up, strange yeah. how it just went viral and, and everyone started psy-op. talking about it.
2: I'm telling you guns, it's a psyop. There's big money behind it. There's very sophisticated uh, psychological engineering uh, on display here. Um, uh, the footprints are there, especially in the Google search and the timing, and the um, and the way the press dealt with flat Earth when it exploded. They sort of patted them on the head and said, "Oh, isn't that cute?" But it's not. Right. It's not gonna, as opposed to how they dealt with the principle, which is they tried to kill us. Um, you know, it, it. I call it gnosticism on steroids. Uh, we when when confidence in the world structure is undermined. Gnosticism flourishes because you figure you're being lied to and the secret elites are controlling everything. Therefore, nothing is too outrageous because after all, they're powerful enough Mm -hmm. to make you believe it. Uh, We lose our connection to physical experimental demonstration in science and to sound right reason logic in metaphysics and theology, and it just becomes a a funhouse mirror world of completely arbitrary... uh, I mean, you know, you you talk to the flat earthers, you you point out to them, hey guys, there are stars orbiting two poles, not one. On the flat earth, there's only one pole. That's a problem for you. Oh, no, 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 it's all just a matter of perspective. Now that word perspective to them... (laughs) It's like a it's like dark matter in cosmology. You just sprinkle it in wherever you need it to make the equations work. What does perspective mean to them? Well, it means uh something that makes it look like the stars are orbiting two poles when they're not. Well, that's ridiculous. That's not what perspective is. You know when you when you watch the North Star, and you're north of the equator, it always stays just as big. And it always stays just as bright the farther south you go. It just gets closer and closer to the horizon. And then you get to the equator, and it goes beneath the horizon. That's not perspective. Perspective means it would be getting smaller and smaller and dimmer and dimmer. That's not happening. That's what perspective would be. But you try to explain that to a flat earther, and they just keep saying, no, no, it's a matter of perspective. Why do they say that? Because whoever they trust in the flat earth cult told them, it's perspective. It's an anti-rational age we're headed for, guys. And, and right. it's, it's, it's necessary to keep the fires burning any way that we can, especially those of us who are kind of out there. Um, you know, we have a more uh, compelling responsibility to subject ourselves to experimental test and logic and reason and to be willing to admit when the other team scores a point. Right. Well, otherwise, we lose so much of what really Western civilization is. And I worry, you know, I worry. I, 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 I Listen, I am I am an outlier. I am one of these guys who fully expects that we're all going to wake up sometime in the next few years and the banks are going to be closed. I mm. fully believe that. Yep. Um. And so it's very easy to dismiss me as one of those flat earthers. And that's, of course, what the PSYOP is all about, uh, to just paint us all into the same corner, and that's why, you know, I believe Flat Earth is a PSYOP, because it's obviously so ridiculous that, uh, uh, you know, to be able to tie 9-11 truthers or, you know, geocentrists or any of these other guys in with the Flat Earth is a very simple way of essentially tarring us with a brush that enables the citizens who don't think the banks are going to be closed in a couple of years to dismiss us all as a bunch of crackpots. I don't think it's going to work. I really don't. Uh, But it certainly makes things uh, more difficult. But the good news is, is it imposes upon us. We have to be even better. Our game has to be even tighter. We have to bend over even more backward to be more fair and more honest in our approach than either the gnostics or the mainstreamers. We have to set an example of being more committed to truthfulness, no matter what it costs. Listen, if somebody can give me an experimental demonstration of the motion of the earth, and they can do it again and again and again and I can see it and I can watch it, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna admit it. Yeah. Um and and that's the difference between me and a flat earther. I can well, give I can give them 15 falsifications and they just run on to the next one.
0: Well, that's great. That's great. I, you know, you put that very well. Now I just to let you know, you know, we, we mainly have a Protestant audience, but we also have some very lovely uh, Catholic listeners out there and what's up Catholics. You know, just if you don't mind, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your relationship with the Catholic church before we wrap up. Um, because, you know, w-
2: uh, with, I, I, uh, go,
0: I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, within the uh, within the community, you know, there's a there's a a large range of uh, beliefs and worldviews and things, uh, especially with our listeners here. And you know, uh, just just so we can mitigate some of the emails about how you're, you know, going to be a Catholic Jesuit uh, psyop assassin. <laughs> yeah. um
2: Yeah. Like I told you, we have no natural allies here. I am a convert, an adult convert to the Catholic faith. Um, I read myself into the church over 10 years. I had a conversion experience through the scriptures uh, when I was about 25 years old. I was one of these guys who became, by, by the grace of God, by the way, completely persuaded all at once that the scriptures were of supernatural providence. And for the next 10 years, basically, you would never see me anywhere without a Bible in my hand. And I read the scriptures fanatically for 10 years. And I hung primarily with, you know, I'd, I'd find the poor people. I'd find the poor Christians, uh, the ones who gathered in coffee shops to argue about the scriptures. And I, I would always find myself driven and gravitating toward those types of, of, of people, the simple, the poor, but who were deeply committed to the truth of the scriptures. And it was through that process of reading the scriptures and noticing that all of my brothers could disagree on essentially every line in scripture, but they all had pretty much one thing in common they all were either ex Catholics or anti Catholics. And you know me, boy, I see something like that and I get interested. <laughs> So I started to read the Fathers, and I started to go back. I read the the Didache, and I read St. Polycarp's Martyrdom, and all the uh, the St. Justin Martyr, and uh, um, St. Irenaeus, and and all of the ancient Fathers. And I was stunned, utterly stunned, to realize that these guys were profoundly Catholic. They had a Eucharist, they had bishops, they they had uh, essentially all of the Marks, that my brethren, my biblical brethren, were telling me were marks of the beast and were marks of the... uh... So I got interested in Catholicism, and I started reading the fathers. And then one day, one day, I walked into a Catholic church in Santa Barbara, California, Our Lady of Sorrows. And I wanted to have myself a nice joust. And frankly, it was a Jesuit, Jesuit father. And I walked in there and I said, Father, I got a question for you. You guys call Mary the queen of heaven, right? Yes, yes, we do. I said, and I opened my Bible to Jeremiah, uh, where, of course, Jeremiah excoriates the Hebrews for pouring out libations to the queen of heaven. Mm-hmm. And I said, Father, how are you going to answer this one? Huh? I had him dead to rights, you know? And I will never forget as long as I live. He raised his eyes, a very gentle man, old man. He raised his eyes to heaven, and then he lowered them, and he looked at me, and with the most gentle smile, he said, May I suggest something to you? I said, sure. And he reached at his desk, and he handed me a book. And the book was called Documents of the Early Christian Faith. A little paperback. I read that book. At the end of that book, I made a decision one morning, 6 o'clock, I wandered on up to uh, Our Lady of Sorrow's Catholic Church for the 6 a.m. Mass. You know, there's nothing fancy. There's no bells or whistles in the 6 a.m. Mass. The guy walks out there, wiping the sleep out of his eyes. There's no homily. There's no organ. There's no incense. But I sat in that church, and I felt the centuries roll, and it changed me forever. I mean, it took me another couple of years to come into the church, but I was Catholic from that moment. The mass did it for me. And so I bring very much a biblical fundamentalist sensibility with me to the church, which has caused my bishops no end of frustration, I have no doubt. But I am deeply persuaded of the truth of the Catholic faith. I certainly do not present myself as being in a position to impose this on anyone else, nor what I want to. But it is the outcome of an honest, Examination of conscience and intellect. Um, I am not. I am not on the invite list of any Jesuits. Uh, <laughs> the Jesuits. Well, we detest, have that in common. Yeah, the Jesuits detest me, and to be honest <laughs> with you, the Catholics detest me. the The greatest opposition to the film comes from within the Catholic Church. And while Dr. Hartnett, uh, who is the source of the "We're actually secret Jesuit agents," Uh, that is ridiculous. Um, but I understand it, because let's face it, the Catholic Church burned Giordano Bruno on the streets of Rome, and they burned plenty of other people besides. And they were my ancestors. I'm a French Huguenot, by extraction. And we went to war with the Catholics, and we murdered their babies in their cribs, and they murdered our babies in our cribs. And these are horrifying things to contemplate. If they happened once, is it possible that it might happen again? I am concerned about that. I am Catholic for one reason only, uh, because I believe it's true. Uh, I am not unaware of the difficulties, the horrifying difficulties besetting the Catholic Church, especially today. I have the greatest respect for those. One thing I can tell you is my Protestant brothers hold on to certain Catholic dogmas better than we do. One of them Mm -hmm. is the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, another one is the sovereignty of grace. And, um, when the time is right, when we have finally reached the end of our robe, God is going to come down and fix it for us. And we're not responsible for fixing it, but what we are responsible for is remembering to see the face of Christ in every single person that we meet, especially those who are our brothers in baptism. Um, so, you know, I fail at this 15 times a day, but, uh, I am absolutely persuaded that Christ, um, for all of the shocking horrors is present on that altar in the Eucharist. And that's the only thing that matters to me. I mean, everything else is just noise.
0: Right. Well, that is very authentically and eloquently
1: put. Yeah. And, and, you know, I do have questions along those lines and coming from, you know the the theme or i guess the the tone of our our show as a whole you know there's been some criticism of the catholic church and all this stuff but it, you know i don't want to get into you know calling it the beast or anything of that nature in this discussion but i do want to focus on one particular element of it which is this whole Uh, Exo theology interests. um, Oh
2: yeah, oh yeah.
1: From the papacy and and you know.
2: yeah. Well, look, guys, you're not going to get any argument out of me. We have we have things happening in Rome today that are just you know you think you guys have pillars wobbling. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the deal. The best I can the best I can do. We read in 2 Timothy that there will come a time when they will reject sound doctrine. And having itching ears, they will gather to themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And then again, in Catholic theology, this event is essentially referred to as the great falling away or the great apostasy. The Spirit has told the church from the very beginning that this would come. Right. And it is a precursor of Antichrist. And the best that I can do, the best that I can say, is that I believe myself, I am willing to be corrected. I am not presenting this dogmatically. It's just the best a poor fellow trying to make sense out of this can do. I believe we have entered that period. The faith is being lost throughout the world. Um, incredible novelties are being advanced by Rome. Just be unbelief. Right, And because of this, I believe that we have entered that prophesied time of the great falling away of the great apostasy. Um, I am completely convinced that it's going to get much, much, much worse. And that, in fact, our blood is going to flow just like it always does uh and that th- that time is not far off
1: that's really interesting because you know I've I've read some statistics and you know I know statistics can be bent um but a large portion of the catholic church doesn't believe in end times prophecy or any kind of um you know relationship with modern times to any prophetic uh, passages but, of the scripture so that's a that's, unique take
2: no that's true they don't uh it's not that they repudiate the belief because it's a dogma of the faith right I mean but like so many things since the Second Vatican Council the focus has shifted in the church from God to man uh, when you hear the Pope talk now it's so much about building the community of nations and creating better circumstances for you know the fulfillment of the uh, human race which has always been a an important part of the faith. But to me, we see it being elevated now above. Uh, you know, Christianity is not in the world so that everybody has a better life in the world. Yes, we would love everyone to have a better life in the world. Christianity is in the world to give you eternal life, Our mission in the world is to go and preach to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. There is no doubt in my mind that we have lost, not lost, but there's a battle going on inside the church to try and downplay that. And I think it is in the service of trying to establish a universal Structure of governance for mankind. And I read that and I read Daniel and I read the other books of prophecy and scripture and I say, you know what? This is beginning to look very much to me like the great apostasy. It's definitely not the mainstream Catholic position, but also I am not condemned by my bishops for holding it. I just am not very welcome. <laughs> I'm not very welcome in certain Catholic circles for for
1: believing that. Right. Well, I mean, we we share that in in our own sort of Protestant circles, if you want to call it that. So I guess we have that in common.
2: Well, like I say, man, you know, I bring a certain degree of. I mean, I was converted by the Scriptures. You know i I am a biblical inerrantist. I believe that the Scriptures are absolutely inerrant in all that they assert. Now that happens to be a Catholic dogma too. But try to find me a Catholic priest who believes it today you know right yeah you know what i'm saying so uh it's a difficult time you know um there's a passage in scripture that says unless those days were shortened even the elect would be
1: deceived yeah, it's Matthew 24
2: yeah and i i believe we're living that so you know i have great hope that if all of us simply hold dig our fingernails in and hold fast to the faith once delivered when the time is right, God will move, and he will move in such a way that everyone knows it sure wasn't us that did it. Uh, and until then, we just have to do our best to, uh, to remain committed to the truth, uh, because God is truth.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, bringing this back to the principle, I guess the, the underlining message there uh, is that there is a creator to this universe, yes. and that we yeah. are important uh, unique and, and you know, uniquely chosen. And, you know, we're, we, we are at the center of the universe, not in any kind of arrogant way, but it's just, uh, it fits the data, as, as you say in the film.
2: We certainly uh, have nothing to brag about because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, but Jesus Christ is incarnate in one place, one special, special place in this universe. And why wouldn't it be the center? Why wouldn't it be what the scriptures and the early church believed it to be? Um, the Savior of the world has come to recognize and, rec- and rescue us, and we have nothing to crow about. We have nothing to stand up and beat our chest about where the center of the we're the footstool is. What we are, what Scripture refers to us as, is God's footstool. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, when we say significant, what we're really trying to do is is fight back against this. You're insignificant, and the future is miserable.
1: Uh,
2: that's what we're trying to, to fight <laughs> back against.
0: Right. Well, Rick Delano, this has just been a, a fantastic conversation, beautiful conversation, and uh, definitely educational. So, can you tell everybody who's listening right now how to get a hold of the movie, how to get a hold of uh, any of your other works? Where can they connect?
2: Sure. Uh the, the place to start is ww.the That's P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E, not A L. principal dot com. We're on Facebook. We have bracing debates all day, all night long. Um and uh we uh we also are available on iTunes and Amazon and at christiancinema.com. dot com. So uh, we're getting easier and easier to find out there. I just want to say to both of you that I completely agree that this was a remarkable conversation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, this opportunity, and I've enjoyed it very much.
0: Well, we're so happy to hear it, and we'll definitely have to get you back on to talk more about all this sorts of stuff. I'm, I, I have a feeling you've got a, a, a lot more that you could share with us, not just on this subject, but many others.
2: Anytime you just let me know.
0: Okay, sounds good. All right. Well there you go, guys. That is Rick Delano. Go check out the movie. Do it now. Thanks, Rick, for coming on the show. You
2: guys are awesome. Contact me anytime. Love to come back on.
0: Woo woo. Okay, thanks, cool.
2: guys. Have a you great be- day. God you- bless you.
0: You betcha, buddy. You too. So there you have it, folks, just a, a, a truly fascinating conversation with Rick Delano. Um, you know, it, it's just a, such an interesting guy and, um, you know, with, with uh, such an interesting, uh, exploration of science and, and also religion at the same time, you know, kind of like a yeah, whole, yeah. Faith, whole, well, whole well-rounded conversation there is fantastic. So I'm definitely going to go watch the movie. You guys got to go watch the movie. Um, I'm sure we'll post links or something, right?
1: Yeah, we'll have links all in the description section uh, of uh, if you go to CanaryCryRadio.com and search for episode 110.
0: There you go. Show notes, baby. All right, guys. That has been it. That Uh, has been it. That has been it. Uh, If you guys can do me a favor, a personal favor, if you want to do Basil a personal favor, you can go to iTunes.com. And rate and review Canary Cry Radio and or Canary Cry News Talk. That helps us out a lot, guys. Uh, all you got, to just takes like two, three, four minutes. Um, just go into iTunes, search Canary Cry Radio, leave us a rating and a review. That's some stars and some words. And just let everybody know uh, why you like listening to Canary Cry Radio or you don't like it. Preferably, hopefully you liked it. If you made it this far. That really helps us out, shows other people that the show exists. If you want to support Canary Cry Radio in a financial way, you're totally welcome to do that. You can go to canarycryradio.com, click on the support tab. There you can make uh, a donation in any amount. Or if you're, if you're feeling spicy, you can sign up for a, a monthly donation that's just sort of reoccurring and automatic and awesome. Uh We also still have, well, not still have, but we have a batch of USB um, archive drives that are available. You can uh sign up for, if you sign up for $15 or more a month, we'll send you a metal uh, apocalypse-proof USB drive with the first 100 episodes of Canary Cry Radio, plus the art, plus videos, plus a, a soundtrack uh, handpicked and created by Shimura. And uh yeah, it's going to be great. We got some of those available and, uh, anything else guns? No. No. Okay. All right. So there you go, guys. Hope oh, you enjoyed well, this. Okay.
1: I'll, I'll say this. Ooh, that was close. That's the very end. I almost just ended the whole thing. I know I stopped you. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just say that there is a big announcement coming from, uh, my personal life that I will share with the world and it's going to, to revolutionize, Um, I don't know. He's
0: getting those robotic
1: kangaroo legs that we talked about. (laughs) I'm getting, um, a DNA upgrade. So (laughs) you don't have to, I will be the test subject. Oh my God. No, that's not it. Uh, but I'll, I'll be sharing it in a few days or some somewhere. Um, And I want to prep people because it might mean, I don't know what it would mean. What does it mean, Basil? I don't know what it means. (laughs) I don't think it means anything. Uh, it might mean I get more stressed out. Okay. I'm just gonna leave it there. Thanks for
0: listening to Canary Cry Radio, everybody. Uh make sure to tune in next time. But until you do
1: Hold on. Thank- oh, oh I stopped gracious. you again. Gracious, you're
0: killing me I know. inside. It's
1: great. It's great. But you'll you'll feel better <gasps> because did you promote your joy Spiracy theory? Oh, you know what? I didn't.
0: That's not like me at all.
1: No, it's <laughs> I'm not. usually
0: a ruthless and shameless self promoter. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> um yeah, if you guys <laughs> want to check out uh my podcast thejoyspiracytheory.com search the Joy theory on itunes it's a show where we explore just the the life of somebody who's waking up to all of these crazy things like geocentrism and uh all sorts of things and uh, you know a lot of times people find themselves deep deep into research and they forget uh to care about themselves and uh, I'm gonna. I'm here to combat that, everybody. So go get some joy. Go to thejoyspiracytheory.com dot or search it on iTunes. It's gonna be great. You're gonna love it. People, people, people think it's stupid until they listen to it. And they're like, <laughs> this is what I needed in my life. <laughs> so go check it out. Yep. Okay. And also, face like the sun on YouTube. Yep.
1: Subscribe YouTube channel.
0: Okay. Videos. For a third time's the charm here, Gonzo. Right. I, I, I swear will not to you, stop you this time. Okay. All right, thanks for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. But until then, think outside the cage. Woo! That felt good.